passage of this bill, I believe, is an investment in Alaska's future. In my opinion, this is the worst bill I've ever seen as a member of the legislature. Those vetoes, I think, are harmful to public education. I've learned one very strong thing is you don't always know people's motives. They appear to have a head-in-the-sand approach to budgeting. I'm disappointed. I'll be sending a letter today. We're in the governing business. We're not in the kicking-the-can business. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Geltobin. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Tobin and I are joined by representatives from the ACLU of Alaska to discuss prison reform, book banning, and the fight for trans rights. Michael Garvey is the advocacy director for the ACLU of Alaska, and Megan Edge is the director of the Prison Project. Thank you for joining us. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So before I kind of get into some of the specifics here, you've been in the building all day today. What is your kind of big picture takeaway from walking the halls and meeting with people and talking to people today? My takeaway is the same as it is every time that I'm here, which is that to do good work, you really have to spend a lot of time connecting with people and taking it seriously. There's so much detail that's involved um, that I don't think the general public knows about. Um, A lot of behind the scenes work just to get to the point where something becomes public. Um, And that's the work that I really enjoy doing. And that's the takeaway from today for me. Megan, what are your takeaways as you've been walking the halls today? You know, I was having flashbacks to last session when we had the opportunity to bring down formerly incarcerated people. And I was sort of reliving that experience. And there's such a disconnect between how policy is passed and how laws are made and what that process looks like, you know, for me as a well-educated person who works in this and I just truly wish it was more accessible for um, my fellow Alaskans. It's such a fascinating process, um, but it is really complicated. And reading about it in a book is one thing, but seeing it in action is totally different. And I think the piece that always gets missed is how that law then applies to those who are most impacted by it. I love when our community partners bring folks in who have been affected by what we do in this building, because oftentimes you'll see a legislator's eyes suddenly light up and say, oh shoot, that's not what I hoped the outcome would be. Or I didn't understand what would be the latent function of something that I thought was benign or a throwaway or a misplaced comma. And I have found deep value and deep appreciation for groups like yours that brings folks to Juno, helps reduce those barriers, and gives us insight into how we can improve lives and not just pass laws. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm just, you know, it was such a nerve wracking experience to bring them down. Um, I feel like a little bit protective um, because I see people getting out and people we brought down working so hard to be productive, safe, healthy members of our community. And, you know, their felonies are the scarlet letter. And so, you know, I bring them down. I'm like, gosh, I hope everybody is nice. And they're really nervous. And everybody was so warm and welcoming. And, you know, we had moments after hours where we would be out eating or, you know, just hanging out and showing them Juno. And the conversations that we started in the Capitol continued in these very just organic and human ways. And it's just, and it's an incredible thing to experience and to watch and be part of. So we're always really grateful when members of the legislature just open their arms to our you know, our people. It's neat. I had a great conversation with 
at the time, our commissioner designee for the Department of Corrections here in this office, and arguably, I don't know a lot about the criminal legal system. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a background in that space. Most of my time has been spent in restorative justice or in education policy work. And I pulled out a book that I had to read in my master's program called You, You Rock, and shared it with her about a person's experience who was incarcerated at Anvil Correction Facility, which is near where I grew up. And she hadn't heard of the book. She didn't know of the story. And later we had a really great conversation about how people are doing great and incredible things and then something triggers them and they make a mistake and that mistake compounds. And then they find themselves in a situation of where uh, an apology is not going to be enough. There has to be restitution. And our systems of restitution are egregious to sometimes the action or the mistake the person made. And it compounds to where there is real harm done for a person on their mental health, their psychological health, all those pieces. And I thought it was a good conversation and I thought it was a good bridge to build and realized we need more of that. We need more folks who humanize it. I, uh, I'm a former journalist, actually, and young journalists always get the cops and courts beat um, because it's just easy to burn out. And so, you know, when I started my career, that's what I was doing. And then I started working on um, criminal justice reform. And in that process, I met people who were incarcerated. And I really learned that, like, most people are not born evil. And most people are not the sum of the worst mistake that they've ever made. Um, and I had this new window to talk to people that I had written about and not in a good way. Um, I never asked them, like, how did you end up in that moment? And they were so forgiving to me for, you know, publicly shaming them for whatever they had done. But most people are not afforded that opportunity. And I think that if we can facilitate more spaces where people who are, you know, incarcerated, people that have felony convictions can talk to people just as human beings, because we're all just human, I think we would make so much more progress. And so, you know, it's, just, it's exciting to see it finally happening. Megan said a phrase that I wanted to follow up on, and that is criminal justice reform. So I've been in this building since 2015. I was here when the big crime bill passed. I actually wrote some of the press releases for that. I then subsequently ended up having to kind of write the press releases when we repealed most of the criminal justice reform and, and scapegoated that piece of legislation. And I don't really want to talk about that piece of legislation, but I want to talk about the subject and how it is politicized. Uh, criminal justice reform and criminal rights and kind of the criminal justice system is a convenient political football or it's just it is something that politicians they pull it out of their back pocket and they wave it around and it is just a tool that is used but it is a tool that really causes harm doesn't it it absolutely does and it does in more ways than i think that are very obvious to people and I think it's a really important conversation to have right now. It's an election year, so we're going to hear a lot of rhetoric about being tough on crime. But, you know, and my question to that is, you know, I've, I'm a lifelong Alaskan. I've had the honor of growing up on Denina lands. Um, and I have lived in a state with the highest rate of sexual assault and domestic violence and gun violence and mental health issues and substance use issues. And 
mass incarceration has not fixed any of those problems. And I think at the end of the day, people listen to that rhetoric because we all just want to be safe. And I think it's really time for Alaska to look at, like, what does safety look like? And I don't think it's just incarceration. I think it's a lot of the upstream impacts. It's the lack of mental health services. It's the, you know, a really strained education system. Um, it's, it's all of those things that come together. And so, um, you know, I think the idea of criminal justice reform can be really scary to some people, but I think it's really important to stress that it's not about being soft on crime. It's about looking for solutions that actually make us a safer, healthier state where people want to live, where we have a thriving workforce and a thriving economy and strong education systems. And then we'll be able to spend so much less money on prisons and we'll also be able to like heal cycles of harm within families. Um, you know, people who have children that have an incarcerated parent are six times more likely to end up in the system themselves. So what if we addressed it from the time that they're little and we created spaces for accountability and healing, not just punishment? Um, and I think that we would achieve greater safety as a state, you know? Mike, is it frustrating to walk into this building and have to work on public policy and you see it get politicized so readily? I mean, I think that's a frustration for any policy area, but this in particular, I mean, and the kind of change that Megan is talking about is one that we can absolutely do. I mean, it's, you know, when talking about re-envisioning public safety, what that means, it's complex. It requires a change in how we systematize things. But if you look at how we already do things, it's already, like, we put so much time and energy into creating these enormously complex systems. Open up the criminal statutes and see how complex they are. We have, uh, you know, we have, um, court procedures that align with the statutes. We have all these Byzantine and uh, systems that bring people in, keep them there, all all oriented around prisons. We can take that same energy into designing a world that actually benefits everyone, that actually creates true community safety, and we should really look at it like that. So it is, you know, it is frustrating, but you know, I also understand kind of how we got there. I mean, there's all kinds of legacies of colonialism and racism involved, right? I mean, not even legacies. They're still very much present. And so it's frustrating, but also taking a beat to understand where that comes from, I think is super vital. Senator Tobin, you sit on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, you have uh, taken an interest in some criminal justice reform legislation, introduced a very good bill today. Um, is it is it challenging to see criminal justice and the criminal justice reform efforts get stymied so often because it's so easy politically to to use it for political advantage? Well, it's often that you'll hear politicians say that there are three things we're responsible for, public education, public welfare, and public safety. And we're expected to be experts in all three of those fields with very little exposure in one that might not align with our area of professional work or our personal interests. It is immensely fascinating to me because if you spend any time in one area, you'll quickly realize they all intersect, they intertwine, and they they cross-sect in ways that hopefully paint that picture of the impacts Mike is talking about. 
when you think about the intersectionality between race and gender and welfare and education and access and disability justice and criminal legal system reform, it becomes this hodgepodge of where you're asking people who might not have had any exposure with criminal justice, criminal legal systems to suddenly work on laws or bills that will have an immensely negative impact on a subpopulation that they don't know anyone who is a member of. And that for me has been fascinating and frustrating. I recently read a book by Emily Bazelon called Charged, which really delves into juvenile justice and particularly incarceration of young people and the hyper-incarceration of young people of color and how we have the systems of diversion and the ways to help young people provide restitution and restorative practices for things that they made mistakes on. And yet we don't see good policy being introduced about that or good conversations being helped about that. Megan, uh, I did a Google search earlier today and uh, your and I, I, I saw your name and almost it and the articles were almost always about uh, the uh, the kind of the spike we have seen in deaths in our prisons. And I want to see if you can put that in some sort of context. Is it what we are seeing? Is it abnormal? Uh, and is it systematic or is it just circumstances it it is abnormal um you know when i came into this work it was off of the heels of kelsey green's death um kelsey green you might remember was somebody who had struggled with a substance use issue for a long time and when um she got in trouble for a very low level crime you know went to her talked to her family and her dad was like, yes, take her. She, there's no treatment options for Kelsey here. So maybe she can get clean and she can get sober and then I can come take her back and then we can keep working on her rehabilitation and get her into a safe place of recovery. But Kelsey Green never made it that far. Kelsey Green died 70 pounds, maybe 90 pounds in a cell by herself, reaching for the call button for help, detoxing by herself. And, you know, and then there was Devon Mosley, who had severe mental health issues. And, you know, and he actually was arrested on a warrant from another state. And when that state came to transport him, he was in such bad shape. They're like, no, we're not taking him. This is on you. He spent his time in solitary confinement. And when an investigation was done into his death, you know, they found that he was naked. He hadn't bathed. Um, officers had thrown food at him while he was in solitary confinement, and he ultimately died of a medical complication related to untreated ulcers that he had. And that's some of, some of where that reform in prison actually came from. And, you know, to see it unwound was frustrating. You know, you get your heart invested in something, and you're just like, you know, this is disappointing. But it actually scared me because I was scared of what would happen. And it's exactly what we're seeing today, a high number of deaths of incarcerated people, many of which are very young. They're in custody very a very short period of time. When we talk to their families, there are a lot of people who went into this system with complicated mental health issues, complicated substance use issues, often both. You know, jails are never going to be a hospital. We have to stop treating them like they're hospitals. But while they're in custody, the state has a responsible to make sure that they're healthy, 
and that they're safe and they're not. Um, and that's very clear from the number of deaths. In January alone this year, we've already seen four people die. One of the most disturbing things we learned last year was that there were people who were suffering these very severe medical emergencies while in custody. They were young and they would be transported to hospitals it, unconscious in wrist sh- shackles and belly sh- shackles and spit hoods. And then they would get to the hospital and they would get discharged or the charge would get dropped or one guy got medical parole without applying for it and nobody gets medical parole and you know and doc says you know like our hands are clean of this they weren't in our custody but the reason that they died was because of the medical emergency that they experienced while they were in custody that's that's very very alarming um you know this whole system is all about accountability and yet the system responsible for holding people accountable is not holding itself accountable in comparison you know, to other states, we're seeing a spike in in deaths um, around the country. COVID was exceptionally hard on incarcerated populations. They lost contact with their family, their loved ones. They stopped programs and treatment. And But systems that have a much larger population than ours, let's take like Rikers in New York City. New York City incarcerates a lot more people than we incarcerate. And at the end of um, 2022, we had like the same number of deaths. Why... Did that happen? How is that happening? Um, And we need to answer those questions. And it's not to just attack one system, but Alaska does not have the death penalty. And yet people are dying at record rates, death by incarceration. And many of these people have not even been convicted of a crime. So it is abnormal and it's super scary. And, you know, we learned a couple years ago in polling that one in seven Alaskans has a connection to the prison system whether they've been incarcerated themselves or they've had a loved one incarcerated. And, you know, I talk to people every day. I talk to people in the Capitol who have that, that sort of experience. And so I think it's really easy to look at prisons and go, nope, those people are out of sight and out of mind, but it's so deeply connected to each one of our communities. And for many of us, our families and our social circles. You brought up an an important point that in many cases, they're not guilty. They're, they're presumed innocent, but yet they're still in custody being in some cases maltreated that must be immensely frustrating for family and all of that to know that you know you've got someone out there that has not been found guilty yet is in custody and being treated very very badly it is really hard you know we have a um, prison investigator and um i i feel for her because so much of her job these last couple of years has been talking to the families of people who have lost a loved one Um, death by incarceration, and not only are they grieving the loss of a loved one, but they have trouble getting their property back, like their wallets and their cell phones and their crosses. Um, They get kicked around from state agency to state agency. They'll call DOC and say, what happened? And they'll say, well, you need to talk to troopers. They're the investigative agency, and troopers will kick them back to DOC, and they're like, well, you got to talk to the ME's office. And it's just impossible to for them to get answers. And so one of the things that we've been doing is, and I think it's part of the reason it's so important to us, is we believe that those families also deserve justice and closure and, and answers. And, and unfortunately, you know, that becomes a million times harder when they just don't even know what happened. They've been completely in the dark. Before we run totally out of time, I want to move on to a couple of other subjects that uh, the ACLU of Alaska is working on, one of which is something that is near to Senator Tobin's heart. I've been working on this issue for a little bit, and that is trans rights. Uh, There was a lawsuit that was filed at the end of January 
Uh, ACLU of Alaska filed a lawsuit against the Matsu Borough over a policy that prevents transgender students from using bathrooms and locker rooms that match their gender identity. This is just, it seems like part of a national trend that we are seeing in, in Alaska that is targeting this very vulnerable group of, of young people. Can you give us the update and, and why this was something that the ACLU of Alaska thought was important to be part of? You're exactly right that it's part of a national trend. And in fact, the the bathrooms policy that the Matsu Borough passed that we're suing over is is almost in, in some ways a little bit of a throwback to where the the targeting of trans children began back in, I mean, it's probably been in existence for way longer than this, but, you know, the case around Gavin Grimm in 2015, I think is when that initiated in Virginia. Um, so, and, you know, access to bathrooms has been a political and legal issue for quite some time. And when the Matsu passed that policy, they actually <laughs> retracted a, a fairly decent policy. And because someone noticed and, we were in the middle of a anti-trans panic and they passed this uh, discriminatory policy and it's all part of that big picture. But it was, it was kind of jarring to see that because of everything else also that was happening in the school district. But I think part of what is especially driving us to do the work both legally and advocacy wise is because we want to make sure that we hold the Matsu accountable and also that other school districts across the state aren't tempted to do the same thing, right? And it, it's been very unsettling to see what's unfolded in the Matsu borough, everything they've done. I mean, that that bathroom policy they passed was in 2022. Since then, I mean, last year was a terrible year. As soon as the legislative session ended, we saw them spring into action to do a lot of things that had been contemplated in statewide action, right? And it's, um, you know, it just... And you go to these meetings and you just, you hear people testify about the personal impact that it's going to have and the board does not care. It's completely crushing. And I mean, I think what's really, really heartbreaking is, you know, we're talking about kids here, kids who just want to be kids, right? And, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of constitutional and other reasons for why we're doing this work. But I mean, that's, that's part of what drives us. And it's, so there's, there's legal action that's happening. There's the, the bathroom lawsuit, there's active book banning litigation that's happening. But uh, I also want to mention that within the last six months, we started a queer and trans justice program within uh, our organization with the intent of focusing more on advocacy and organizing. Cause what we found is we would find out about things last minute. We weren't really plugged into what was happening in the area. Um, and I think that spoke to a lack of true community organizing and we weren't really Show, we were just kind of showing up. We weren't part of the community. And so that needed to change if we were going to really empower people to find strength in numbers and oppose things from the jump before it gets to the courts. Because the courts move slowly. Everyone knows that. And we're going to do our darndest to, to make sure that we have good outcomes and set good precedent. But it's going to take time. And while that's happening, we need to make sure that we're we're organizing to make sure that we stop new bad things from happening and ideally reverse bad outcomes um, that have already occurred. So a nonprofit board that I serve on has been grappling with this question of advocacy. And it's interesting to me working in the nonprofit sector for as long as I have 
that how many of our nonprofits get scared about this word advocacy. They've been hammered over the head that if they spend time advocating for good policy or good approaches, that it is akin to lobbying. And they don't want to get into this space. But the Pride Foundation, which is a nonprofit that works within a five-state region that I serve on, is ready and poised to start an advocacy committee because these policies aren't just happening here in our state. They're happening in Idaho and Utah and Montana and Oregon and Washington State. And we know that as those states grapple with bathroom bans and sports bans and ending access to care and medical services, that those policies are now moving to Alaska through this weird national network of hate. And I know we all have a role in stepping out in front and becoming the front line against harming our kids. And I'm excited and I am relieved that there are groups who are realizing we've got to do the work and we've got to build the relationships. We've got to have the conversations, but at the end of the day, we also need to go through those legal means. And that's where I think the ACLU really has the strength that you're willing and able and experienced and proven in the legal space to adjudicate this real harm happening and these constitutional infringements on Alaskans. The, the point about, Nonprofit organizations embracing advocacy, I think, is a really interesting topic. I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do advocacy, but I think it's really, really helpful when organizations do get engaged. And I mean, I, this is something I spend a, a, a lot of my time. <laughs> this is probably not terribly interesting for your listeners, but uh, compliance with tax law is something that I spend a lot of my time thinking about and making sure that we're straight on because nonprofits 501c3s can engage in lobbying it's just there's a way to do it and it's difficult and it's hard but there's there's a lot of things that nonprofit organizations can do um and i've been fortunate enough to pick up some knowledge along the way but you know and i'm happy to connect with anyone who wants to do, like think that through that process and how to structure that out but the other thing that I think I, I appreciate your kind words about us and the the legal expertise and we work with some wonderful partners, Northern Justice Project among them, um, on this litigation. But I think what is really important that we we keep centered is there's a plaintiff at the middle of every case. And in the more recent, especially the bathroom case, you know, we're talking about children. It's an incredibly brave thing for anyone to do. And, you know, yes, we're pursuing uh, good precedent, but protecting the person at the center is, you know, it, it takes a lot for people to step up and, um, and taking care of them along the way is something that we're, we're really putting a lot of energy into. You know, one, one thing I think I'll add to that, though, is to me, advocacy is not just lobbying on bills. It's a lot of public education whether we're talking about trans rights or rights of people who are in prison, um, people who are experiencing homelessness, so much of, I think, what gets people engaged in the political fodder is fear of things that they don't really understand. Like, if you don't know, then you don't know, and I can't slam you for that. So I think that there's lots of forms of advocacy, and one of the most 
powerful things that I think we need a lot more of as a state is public education. Um, we do work with some like really brilliant litigators and I'm always like an awe to be in their presence because I'm also not an attorney. But one thing I always try and remember is that we can only file a lawsuit once harm has already occurred. And so that's, that's the defense. And, you know, what if we could stop harm from happening so we don't have to file a lawsuit? Um, and I try and, rem- I try and remember that because the go-to is always like, well, let's file a lawsuit. And it's like, well, we have to wait for somebody to be harmed by this before we can, you know, have a client for it. Um, and it shouldn't take that. It's one of the most valuable things that you can do. We've run totally out of time. So I'm going to go to my final question. And I'll begin with you, uh, Mike. If you could choose one person, they can be dead or alive. They get a vote. You get to drop them into this building to, uh, or into the Alaska State Senate and sit next to Senator Tobin and help us out. Who would that person be? Oh, okay. So this is an unconventional answer. I can't imagine anyone who's listening will know who this is. But a former colleague of mine named Vanya. Vanya is someone that I worked with on federal legislation at the ACLU National Office. Uh, I think she would probably be horrified at the idea of being a member of an elected body, but she is so smart about how to get things done and how to create effective policy. And I've watched her do it on two distinct occasions, passing um, an amendment on national defense bill around abortion access for service members, and then around passing federal legislation to expand pregnancy accommodations for um, pregnant workers. And both times, she just hammered out a plan that was effective, smart, tailored to the political scenario, and I learned so much from working with her. I mean, in whatever capacity, I think you'd end up with better results. Megan, who's the person you would choose? Angela Davis. Um, Yeah, and, and, you know, I think... If you know who Angela Davis is, you know, she's she's a bit of a revolutionary. I mean, she is a revolutionary, but her vision for the world and how to create a better world is so beautiful to me. Just her depth of understanding on how misogyny and homophobia and classism and racism all are impacted by, you know, the same systems and the vision for like a better world are just so strong and beautiful and, you know, I, I think about this all the time. Like we do the work that we do today on the shoulders of giants. And I think it's easy to forget that, you know, whoever is writing laws or doing advocacy, like we didn't just start this now, this fight started, you know, forever ago. And it's really easy to like attack somebody on the other side or somebody who disagrees with you or to use it as political fodder. And she does such a, she communicates in such a beautiful way that's not villainizing one side or the other. It's just about a vision for a better functioning society. And I think that's a beautiful thing that can get very easily lost in politics. Michael Garvey is the advocacy director for ACLU of Alaska and Megan Edge is the director of the prison project for ACLU of Alaska. Thank you so much for joining us on the Empty Office podcast. Thank you so much for for having us. So you have been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Giltobin. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on Substack, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and the Apple Podcast app. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.